0: You are listening to Waterflying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the waterflying community. Climb aboard! are about to start today's episode.
1: Welcome back to Waterflying. I'm Abby Kellett, a flight instructor in seaplanes and assistant to Steve McCauley, executive here at the Seaplane Pilots Association.
0: Yeah, and before we start this next episode, we would once again like to thank our sponsors. That is all of you, the members of the Seaplane Pilots Association. You've shown real dedication in helping us achieve our mission of protecting and promoting waterflying. Thank you very much.
1: This podcast is just one of the ways we want to communicate with you, our members, and the public. So you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can also email us here at the office, spa at
0: Yes. And today we're joined by one of our great partners, Art Bosler from Falcon Insurance. Falcon Insurance, most importantly, is the official insurance partner of the Seaplane Pilots Association, and they specialize in working with us in writing seaplane policies for our members. So Art, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well thank you, Stephen Abbey, for the invite and the opportunity to participate and be involved. I hope I can shed a little light on the subject of insurance.
1: We're looking forward to talking art. So I think we're gonna we're gonna
0: gonna gonna dive right in. We're gonna dive into the (laughs) deep end here. So
1: starting off with the big question, I don't want to like tiptoe around it. You know, people wanna hear about insurance rates and why in the world for seaplane owners and operators, why are their insurance rates so high right
2: now? Well, cost is always the number one question we get for everything. And uh, let me begin by saying that the first major thing is the status of the entire aviation insurance market as a whole at this time, not just seaplanes. Seaplanes are just a small part of the overall industry. There's roughly 225,000 aircraft in the United States and probably somewhere around five to 10,000 seaplanes. I'm not sure about the number, but you can see it's uh, probably less than 10% of the total aircraft population. I wanted to start by just talking about the basics of insurance. All insurance products are built on the law of large numbers. Whether you're talking about life insurance or any other property and casualty line of insurance. In a number of recent years, the aviation industry losses have been very high. When you look at the um, two Boeing airline crashes, uh, Egyptian Air and Lion Air, and the problems with the Max uh, Boeing Max aircraft, uh, which was grounded for a couple of years, the total loss, underwriting loss on those are, are over $5 billion. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah, and people um, don't realize that. So there's different ways that... The market is affected, and you and I understand this very well. But there's a top level, which is the Boeing 737 MAX. And we've talked about this on a previous podcasts that it's not only the accidents that happened with the 737 MAX, it's also all the suppliers that stopped supplying Boeing with the product who also had corporate insurance policies that were aviation policies. So even the engine manufacturers, the interior manufacturers, the avionics manufacturers, when Boeing paused the 737 MAX, not It affected
1: al- so much more
0: exactly. than you
1: think. I mean, like where where those connections are, I mean, everyone was affected that was involved.
0: Yeah, and then people don't realize, you know, we're highly sensitive to it, Art, and, and you can speak to this, but like the Nashville tornado last year, I think that was $140 million GA claim, and that was a tornado affecting one airport, but the GA claims amounted to something like $140 million, and that affects everyone's rates.
2: <laughs> well, the other thing that people don't realize is the fact that the entire property casualty insurance market is all connected. And when you look at the, uh, the losses that happened with the hurricanes the last couple of years, the fires out in the western part of the United States, the Midwest flooding, uh, it's caused tremendous losses for the entire insurance world. Uh, and then you look at the uh, recent three helicopter crashes, the Kobe Bryant, uh, there was a uh, an accident in the U.S. Virgin Islands a couple of weeks ago with uh, four fatalities. Uh, two days ago, there was a crash of a helicopter in Alaska with the wealthiest man in, in Czechoslovakia. And all those three losses are, are probably 200 to $300 million. Mm. And then the other, another thing that people don't realize is that uh, an aircraft, a jet engine ingestion claim now runs between 300000 and $350,000. So, if you have a corporate jet, you're paying twenty thousand premium a year and you have an ingestion of three hundred thousand, that means the underwriter needs fifteen years to pay for that one loss so there's there's a definitely a misconception about the size and overall uh, of the aviation market. The total aviation premiums in the United States for every airplane written is roughly two billion dollars so if you look at the five billion dollar Boeing lost last year. That ate up roughly two years of all the premium written on every airplane flying. Wow. Yeah. Like it's just gone. So, it, so it, the
1: idea of like having the big numbers, I mean, how does that come into play with seaplanes being such a small percentage of the GA community?
2: Well, that uh, translates to why the rates are so high compared to fixed swing uh, sure. corporate jets and things like that. Plus, another thing that happened, uh, there's there's. There's a cycle in aviation premiums, and I can give you an example. Starting like in 2001 after September 11th, the premiums on everything doubled the next year, and then they doubled again the next year. So in 2003 and 2004, you were paying at least two times or three times what was being paid before. And then by the time 2008, 2009 came along, the market was starting to get profitable again, and you had a number of companies jumped in the market figure and they could uh, capture the, the new premium volumes. And so the rates tanked. And then by 2013, 2014, the company started having losses. And then we had uh, three or four insurance companies uh, leave the business, um, Including uh, Swiss Re, one of the largest insurance companies in the world, stopped writing aviation in the United States. Uh, Berkeley Insurance Company, another large A-plus company, got out of the business. Elevon got out of the business. Travelers got out of the business. So the market then consolidated again.
0: Wow, Elevon and, got out. I didn't realize that. They were one of the larger writers.
2: Yeah, well, they were part of Allianz. They were like the general aviation part of Allianz, the big German insurer. And they, they stopped writing GA. Uh, a couple years ago so uh and then yet yeah, also had a number of lloyd syndicates in london stop writing aviation altogether so the market the market consolidated quite a bit
0: yeah yeah and it's what people have to realize this is a simple money in money out formula i mean these are you know it's it's strictly a matter of how much money's coming in and how much money's going out the pool right yeah. Yep. So, uh, what can uh, seaplane pilots? So we've got we've got the the odds are stacked against us already with with this scenario. I mean, we we have a decreasing market space for seaplane pilots because there are fewer airplanes flying today. Uh, even though we're seeing some growth, we still have a high level attrition that's affecting us and. But well, what can we do as seaplane pilots to lower our rates? What What are some of the strategies we can employ to lower our rates?
2: Well, let, let me talk about the two uh, primary reasons why the why the rates are so high and why the premiums are so high on seaplanes. Uh, first, the first thing is the risk factor, and when I say risk factor, I mean the environmental operating conditions. You know, things like debris in the water, obstacles, overhead wires, wind wind conditions, saltwater problems the availability of service facilities, things like rafts in the water, swimmers, water skiers, all these things, uh, including, you know, the operation of uh, air seaplanes, the density altitude considerations. Uh, the cost of a ground loop on a land plane is a lot less than a bad landing in the water where you uh, have a total upset or uh, uh, whatever, because the, the, uh, the cost to recover those and and the salvage potential to recover, to mitigate the loss, is a, is a lot to uh, a lot worse with seaplanes than it is with land planes.
1: Sure, you're a you lot know, less likely to hit a canoe when you're flying a 172 on wheels at an airport.
0: Canoe. Well, so, no. <laughs> so, I mean,
1: like, there's always a chance, but you're less likely.
0: Statistically, though, seaplanes don't hit boats. So I want to make sure right, we get that up.
1: Right, but the risk—it's that idea of a risk. We do hit Even logs. If we do hit other there. things
0: that are sure uh, that are. You know, potentially damaging to the floats, mm-hmm. and and again, if you compromise a float, you potentially sink a float, and now you're sinking an engine and avionics and everything else. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we we operate in an inherently risky environment because we're not going on a paved, you know, guaranteed surface, Com-
1: surrounded uh, by I, a gated, you know, I barbed think, wire
2: I fence. Yeah, uh, I think the SBA did a study uh, a number of years ago, and the four leading causes of Accidents are one improper techniques. Number two, wheels up uh, on on an amphib that goes going to be flipped over. People wheels down on a wheel, wheels conditions. down on
0: an amphib, yeah.
2: And, and the other thing is the glassy water uh, situation, which uh, causes a number of accidents and incidents. So yeah. uh, that, that's the that's the first part, the risk part, is, uh, which is a greater risk inherently than operating a land plane and the second thing is what we started talking about before is the population uh, of the uh, number of aircraft involved to, to generate premium um, and here the question is how do underwriters determine the rates they're going to use well there's an old there's an old theory called burning rates so for example if, if you have a new airplane comes out let's say like the gulf stream one uh, and it cost a million dollars. Uh, so an underwriter has to say, well, how, what kind of loss uh, am I going to expect on, on these? So let's say then you've got five aircraft. So now you've got a million dollars and you got five airplanes. So that's 5 million of value. And let's say you lose one airplane. Okay. So you've lost a well, million dollars. So that risk had to be determined on the basis of what the population was going to be. So, uh, that's generally how they start doing this. So if you get a new airplane, and it comes into the market, underwear has to take some chances in the beginning till some population builds up and you start seeing what kind of losses are developing so they can determine what the base rate or the burning rate is they need to pay f- for the uh, losses without consideration for uh, the their overhead of, of issuing policies, the broker's commission, uh, liability claims and everything else. So. Um, that that's the starting point of how they begin to develop uh, so they're uh, making
1: generalizations
0: well the, the you know the i don't want to point I hate to point any manufacturer out, but one that, that would come to mind in exactly the scenario you just mentioned when you're talking about figuring out a burning rate for an aircraft like the icon where there was no data on it. And you had a very limited number of airplanes so, in the market So, yeah, the generalization,
1: space. meaning that the information that they do have is what they're going to put on all the aircraft because they have so little information.
0: So you have an aircraft with a base price of $350,000. There's less of than 100. And, and right now, I think we're at about 130 icons in the fleet. And they've had a couple of incidents with fatalities. Sure. Um, no fault of the airplane. They were actually the fault of the pilot in, in the incidences that they've had so far. But you've got a very small fleet. It's a new unknown airframe with unknown loss rates. And it's a very expensive airplane. So now when you are, uh, this is where the burn rate comes in, where you're trying to establish, you know, how much does an insurance policy cost for an icon? Well... We're hearing numbers as high as $30,000 a wow. year.
1: Wow! But that's why it's so important that ICON has such a successful flight training program. Because yes. I know we've talked about that and the fact that, Like you know, I said, are- I
0: hate to point out any manufacturer, and it, it wasn't the manufacturer's mm-hmm. issue, either the incidents or the fact that there wasn't this burn rate knowledge. They didn't have a knowledge base to, a, to really assign the insurance rates for the aircraft. Art, am I am I on the right track there?
2: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's how it all has to start out, and then then you have to start saying, well, what what kind of experience pilot, and what kind of training do we need to have a a, a pilot safely operate that aircraft? Uh, it's not like getting in a Ford and then jumping in a Cadillac, you know. So a lot, lot different uh, uh, with each particular make and model, and and the and the way they function and and whatever. So certainly. <laughs> So, and, of course, then the next thing is uh, each each insurance company has their own experience and uh, have a particular type of or class of business that they want to write. You know, someone want to write corporate jets, some want to write helicopters, someone want to write manufacturing, someone want to write flight schools. So they all have their, their little niche where they want to concentrate their, their money and, and make a profit for their shareholders. Uh, and so when you have a... A base of seaplanes, uh, the question is, who's going to jump into the market and want to put their funds there when when they can be doing better with uh, these other classes uh, of business that they're used to writing?
0: So this is where it's really important for us to stress to the members about where you make your choice with your insurance agency. And so Falcon has been specializing in seaplanes for well over a decade as SPA's corporate partner for seaplane insurance. And so they're very well versed. You guys have a great team of people that are very well versed and used to working around the intricate details that are going to help a seaplane pilot obtain the best, most affordable insurance policy. But it's not always about the cost alone. It's also about the quality of the policy.
2: Right. Yeah, I, I'll get into this a little bit later when I talk about putting together an underwriting submission and what what information needs to be presented to the insurance companies to get the best deal. So I, I can get into that. But uh, going back to the question of uh, lowering cost, uh, I, I kind of broke this down into two areas, you know, one for seaplanes overall. Of course, I think the, the issue is market size and industry uh, experience. Uh and, of course, the market, the number of units are going to have to keep growing so that there's more dollars being put into that category to be able to get more companies interested in and, and uh, start uh, 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 pro- providing more, more uh, op- options for the, for the customer. And as far as an individual person's concerned, a couple of things to help lower the cost is uh, obviously building time in their specific make and model. Taking additional training and doing safety courses. This is very important to the underwriters. They like to know that the people are involved, they're active, and and studying the, uh, you know what what's involved with safely upping an airplane. And of course, then then so getting getting a good underwriting pre- presentation prepared to, to uh, give to the underwriters. That's you know we're there to sell your to sell your case, and and the more the better information we have, the better product you're going to get in the end.
1: yeah absolutely so so important talking about you know what goes into making an insurance policy and the different types of insurance companies so we're going to kind of 180 here what if you're operating uninsured um i've talked to a couple um people that you know they get their rating they want to buy a seaplane and they're just gonna fly uninsured because they can't afford their rates what are some of the ramifications of that
2: well, see, self-insuring, you can do that if you have no bank or lien holder, uh, or uh, you're flying where there's no liability required. Uh, it's one thing to self-insure the hull because you have a limited exposure. If you bought a spent a hundred thousand airplane, well, a hundred your your financial uh,
0: exposure uh, potential
2: loss. Yep. Uh, so you've got to have the financial wherewithal to do that. But as far as the, the liability side of it. Uh, if you uh, cause an accident or damage somebody's property or kill somebody, your your liability is un- unlimited. So uh, it's not very wise to be talking about self-insuring when you're talking about the liability uh, side of things.
1: And I think there's something that just recently occurred in Utah where... You can't operate uninsured in a seaplane in GA engine, at all.
0: Engine aviation, and they're so going to be the
1: twelfth state to require thr-
0: yeah, twelfth or thirteenth. So and a
1: hundred thousand dollars, we're
0: going to get a yeah. list of those states because that's going to be a whole other podcast. Definitely. I think is talking about states that you actually are required to have a hundred thousand dollar liability policy, and basically what they're doing is you know modeling that on the fact that you have to have car insurance, and they're saying, well, if this is another vehicle like a car you should, ha- you know, you should be required to have liability insurance.
2: Well, here, here's the, here's the one of the problems I see with that as well. Uh, the people that are self-insuring the airplanes, if they're just buying liability insurance. You're going to, you're going to pay probably 50% surcharge. So if you buy a policy with hull and liability, uh, your liability, and if if you do liability only, then you're going to be paying a 50% surcharge on the liability frame alone. And of course, the other the other aspect of this is you're putting less premiums into the market. So you're really not helping the industry.
0: Well, that was <laughs> so, the point I wanted to make about all of this. And and it's I have I didn't want to interrupt. And, and that is th- something that is really important to me is that when people start talking about being self-insured and not buying an insurance policy, what they're making is that pool that is already very small. They're reducing the size of that pool pool so what they're doing is effectively increasing the insurance rates of everyone that does have insurance exactly
1: wow wow so i think we kind of answered this already and but i would (laughs) i would like someone um more that sounds better than i do What about operating, you know, self-insured through an organization like SPA? Steve, you could probably answer that.
0: Yeah. So this is why don't
1: we have something like that?
0: This was a question that a member posed to us just the day before yesterday Mm -hmm. in the last 48 hours. We had a member approach us and say, look, my insurance rates are so high. Why can't. The Seaplane Pilots Association create an insurance program uh, for its members. And again, it goes back to that very opening discussion of the fact that we have 5,000 members. We have to come up with some kind of formula like maybe 20% of the members or 50% of the members would actually use the program uh, that are owner-operators and, number one, would abandon their policy To join our program, so now if you're talking about an insurance pool of 2,500 people, and again, you have to figure out what are your annual, you know, income from policies, and then you have one loss, and And it wipes
1: out the entire pool.
0: Say, I mean, that's yeah. Say we have about five million dollars in income from insurance policies on an annual basis, and you have one loss where you have you know, this year we had two losses with over seven fatalities in them. So you just, just conservatively say you have a $60 million claim on a pool that's only producing $5 million a year. It's not supportable. And that's if you have one claim. (laughs) So there's, there's a
2: couple other issues too. You have to have an insurable interest to have a legal insurance document. So there's some legalities in trying to set something up like that because you have to create an insurable interest. So, you know, what's what's the insurable interest of me putting my airplane in in some pool and somebody else is putting their airplane in that same pool. So that that's another another a discussion
0: needs to be had. Yeah. And so for our members uh, that may be asking this question, why can't an organization like the Seaplane Pilots Association? That's why we have partnered with Falcon. That's why AOPA has their insurance program and EAA has insurance programs, because we as nonprofit advocacy organizations cannot support the um, a program that's a standalone program so we would love to do it uh there are both legal reasons why we cannot do it but there's also financial reasons why where the formula just does not work right okay so Abby and I had this argument uh, many times before on the podcast where we discussed that. I don't
1: know if it was many times. It's not like we're arguing about this every time. We had one what, like what? really good conversation. <laughs> so if you go back and you tune in to season one, I think it was last year. I couldn't tell you which episode it was. You can listen to Steve and I argue about this topic.
0: Oh, yeah. We had a passionate discussion.
1: It was a really good conversation. I learned a lot.
0: So uh, we talk about the pros and cons of straight floats versus amphibious floats on seaplanes. And I think there's a, a great reason why someone might choose to go straight floats uh, insurance being one of them. Uh, but how are the, those insurance rates between amphibs and straight floats? What are you seeing going on right now as far as the differential of annual premiums?
2: Well, the straight floats are obviously at the at the lower cost and uh a couple of reasons are you have lower maintenance costs on the airplane. You have uh, lighter weight floats. Uh, it's easier to operate.
0: He listened to our uh, podcast.
2: He did. Or he just knows because he
1: has 40 he years in the industry. He has 40 years
0: in the industry. <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, I, so we just uh, had to do plane, that.
2: planes need a, need a base for services. You know, one of the downsides, of course, is if you have a, a float uh, a float plane uh, that you, and you can only operate on water, then you're limited to where you get gas and fuel and all the other things. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the infant floats. Uh, I think the, the pilot has to uh, keep himself current between operating on water and operating on land. So there's additional.
0: Uh, wow. And now he's talking about an article that's going to be in the magazine that went to print this morning. So this is great. <laughs>
1: it all ties together. <laughs> it
0: all ties together. So what about those rates, though? So with the insurance rates. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of amphib pilots with their jaw just dropping to the ground right now, and that is a consideration. I think that when someone's making a buying consideration to buy a straight float or an amphib, I think insurance cost is going to be one of them. What, what are you seeing as far as the differentials? Well, I,
2: I would say just a rough, a rough uh, guess here. What with with a float plane, say at a hundred or $150,000, you're going to be looking at somewhere between three and 5%, depending on your file experience and, and uh, all, all the other underwriting factors. And then if you go to the, amphibious floats, you're, you're probably looking at a 15 or 20% difference. So wow. let's say you're looking at somewhere between 350 and 5% on the hull. As far as liabilities are concerned, uh, there's not much difference uh, on the liability. Uh, basically, it's either a two-place or a four-place. So you're going to be looking at somewhere between 1600 and 2000 annually for a million dollars of liability coverage on, on either of them. And that's going to be based on you know, your, your, your overall experience and your time and type and make and model and, and uh, the other underwriting factors.
0: But um, repeat those, now, re, repeat that percentage though, because that, that ANFib percentage you just gave to me was, was, I, I think people need to re-hear that. What was, what was the percentage rate on that of hull value? The, whole, the percentage hull value is going to be
2: between three and 5% on, on the straight floats and probably 350 to 5% on the, on the amphibs.
0: So what kind of, so uh, say uh, and
2: it's going uh, to be based, it's going to be based on make, uh, on making model time. So let's say, let's say you got, have a gentleman or a pilot that has three or 400 hours in type uh, and make a model. He's, he's going to be towards the, closer to 3%, whereas the person that comes in with 10 hours or 20 hours or 30 hours he's going to be closer to the 4 or 5%. So uh,
0: okay so 5% is what you're uh, so you're saying about 5% of haul value for an amphib it just as a starting place to have the conversation.
2: Right, between say $100,000 and 150,000. Of course now it's going to it's going to change once you get into the more expensive airplanes like the Icon where where you have only a couple markets writing it the others the other airplanes with you know Cessna 172s and Piper Cubs there's there's more market available yet there's still you know four or five companies versus two or three so so uh, that that's a factor as well
0: so if i apply that formula you're saying for a super cub on amphibs at um 150, 100, 100 150,000 haul value we're talking about a $7500 policy would be in line, not it wouldn't be out of line completely.
2: No, because you're talking, let's say, four percent on 150 to six grand and a thousand, or you know, five to six grand, and then your liability is 1500 to 2000. So you're going to be looking at basically 4000 and 2000 or, or from there, uh, uh, you know, slightly higher. But the problem now is that the markets have been increasing the rates the last three years. So, you know, we're still still seeing. 15 percent increases on what they were, what they had. So everybody's wondering why, why they're getting increases when they had a safe operation or whatever. Well, it's all market condition. You know, the whole the whole aviation world market has two billion of premium, and and uh, you know they, they need to try to generate more more uh, premium. Uh, to to pay for losses, as I mentioned. You know, a simple just. Jet ingestion is three
0: hundred thousand, three hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, you wow. Know,
2: so this is you this is, twenty. You need 20, 20 premiums on a jet to pay for that one one. Yeah, uh, bond claim.
0: So I just had a guy on a uh, husky on amphib's. Uh, he was up in New England, and uh, his quote was about thirteen thousand dollars. Uh, but the big thing that I think was hurting him was he didn't have a seaplane rating yet. He was hoping to get his seaplane rating. And so he had like 5,000 hours of time, but he had no seaplane rating and no time and type on floats. Uh, well, especially here, in here's,
2: a, here's another question that came up with uh, about rating insurance. A number of years ago, uh, I personally reviewed over 5,000 losses and it turned out that you could take a TWA captain with 20,000 hours and put him in a J-Cub. The first 10 hours, he was as likely to have an accident as a 100-hour pilot put 100 hours in that airplane.
1: I believe so it. All the, yeah.
2: all, all the insurance companies then started all their underwriting based on total time and make and model time. So that's why was, there's always this issue about make and model time because statistics have shown that the first 10 to 20 hours, it doesn't matter how much total time you have, you're as likely to have an accident as a three or 400-hour pilot.
0: Yeah, that's really something. And so for that reason, what I really encourage people to do, if they're looking at buying an airplane, try to go get 25 hours in it at minimum, if not 100 hours. Try to get at least 25 hours in tight before you go apply for a policy.
2: All right. Well, I know one one market wants to see uh, wants to see guys with hundred hours of seaplane time before they'll even talk to you. So, you know, if if they've been flying for a while and got hundred hours and they get another airplane, then of course you're going to be looking at five or ten hours of uh, transition time. But, but uh, they
0: want they want, they're looking for people with hundred hours of seaplane time.
1: Sure, sure. That's some, um, that's some amazing And that's hard to there. get I mean, for a
0: lot of people. I mean, right, when yeah. you're talking about a hundred hours of dual, unless you yeah. know someone that owns a seaplane that you can log time in with them, uh, it's not easy to get a hundred hours of PIC in a seaplane. I mean.
1: I mean, you're a CFI. That's, that's a big part. Like people become CFI so they get that time.
0: But you have to but, either know someone that owns one that will allow yeah. you to fly with them or you have to go do what I did. I mean, I put in several hundred hours, you know, paying as a paying customer before I owned my first seaplane. So it, you know, but these are, these are important things to know because you're building your experience, you're building your safety factor. So it's not like you're doing this just to get your insurance rates down and it's going to make you a better pilot in the process. And I think, again, everyone, I hope will approach it at a little deeper level where all of this is a symbiotic system. So as you're building time to get those lower insurance rates, you're also becoming a safer pilot and learning more in the process. And you just have to kind of take it as that yeah
1: so there's a reasoning behind it you know it's not like they're trying to be the boogeyman and make your life difficult like there should be something to be gained from getting all that extra training so art moving into our next question here getting kind of dark but (laughs) but what happens to our insurance insurance rates after an accident so let's say gear down water landing in an amphib something we hope never happens to anybody but it can happen it has happened um recently and you know in the past year so in this scenario, the scenario we're giving you right now, there were no fatalities and the aircraft was recovered. So that's my hypothetical situation for you.
2: Well, I think it, I think it depends on the overall circumstances and uh, the lo- level of, uh, of experience in that pilot. So if you, have, if you have a pilot that has an accident early, uh, it's going to be harder for him to get insurance a little later. Uh, until it builds up more time. And I know the one example you gave is uh, one question came up as a guy had an accident and the uh, company told me he had, he, has, he can't get another quote for three years. Mm-hmm. And he was changing his airplane from a, a tailwheel to an and fib. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what his background was or what his total experience was pilot wise. Uh, but uh, there's going to be that issue. Now, if you have somebody that's well experienced and has an accident, well, that's what insurance is for. And, you're going to see some, some level of increase uh, the next couple of years, uh, probably, you know, but not, not uh, ridiculous. Now, if there's some, some uh, situation where uh, he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, you know, what happened, why it happened, how it happened, was it preventable uh, or just, you know, it it was a situation where you had an accident, like driving a car and you have an accident. Uh, So, it depends on a lot of circumstances about why and how the accident happened, but there's going to be some increase for a while. Um, there's an old theory that, uh, and I don't know if it's true. It's this, this an old theory, but uh, they used to talk about if they gave you a renewal quote and let's say you had a you had a loss uh, right before the right before you bound your insurance coverage, the underwriter would be trying to look to get the. Uh, the loss paid back in seven years. So uh, let's say you got a forty or $50,000 loss and you're paying, you know, 5000 a premium. Uh, I think you can kind of expect you're going to get some, some kind of increase that would take care of that loss over the next seven years. Now, that, you know, I don't know if that works today, but that, that's kind of my theory that I always worked on.
1: So it's a lot of, you know, the situation. I mean, there's so many factors that go into it. So it isn't like this is a... One size fits all. It's no, it's really dependent not. on so many different elements.
0: Yep, and and so Art, um, let's do one more th- uh, one more question, and I think we're going to have to make this a series because what we're finding out here and And I just love the fact that we are exploring this at a deep level because I think it's very it's going to be very good information for our listeners. So I think I'd like to ask one more question or make one more point or explore one more point, and we will we will break this podcast up into multiple episodes because we want to try to keep it uh, you know at a consumable time length but uh, let's talk about you know I don't think people necessarily also think about. The way underwriters look at this, and it's based, again, on the numbers of losses, if you're looking at a Cessna 185 or a Super Cub, because of the way that the airplane typically operates, because Cessna 185s operate in the bush and and Super Cubs typically fly in the bush, uh, that is a uh, a consideration from the underwriters when they're writing a policy, and that affects the policy rates. So, you know, on top of everything else, you have the way the the no, the way the airplane is normally operated in the real world, in the insurance marketplace. And then you get into a further situation where the geographic location of where the aircraft is being operated could affect that. And, you know, the most extreme example I would probably say is Alaska, where, again, you have a Cessna 185 or a Super Cub. Now it's number one, a Cessna one eighty five, and number two, it's operating in Alaska, which may be considered a higher risk location. Is it, I mean, am I on the, again, am I on the right path with this?
2: Yeah, we, we had the, the same issue with the land planes, uh, for example, in the Caribbean, I do a lot of, a lot of insurance in the Caribbean. And the issue is if you have a, an engine failure, you're in the middle of the ocean. Well, what's going to happen? It's going to be a total loss. Uh, and, uh, It's like, where are the service facilities available? You know, if if you have an incident or an accident in Nebraska or something, well, there's a lot of airports around, it's easy to get parts, there's a lot of mechanics around. But as you say, like if you're in Alaska and you have an accident, uh, it's going to be more costly to get parts there, to get people there, to get the work done there. So there's a tremendous difference in the the, uh, cost to repair a a minor incident in places like that versus, uh, you know, in, in the continental U.S., um, and now, as far as seaplanes, I've, I've been working on a couple of seaplanes recently for Puerto Rico. It's like, well, uh, where, where are you, how many lakes are there, there to land? Are you going to land landing on the beach in the ocean? You know, what, what are you going to be doing with this airplane and where are you going to go with it? And so that's a, a critical factor of the territory as a strong consideration for the underwriters.
0: Okay, so again, I want the listeners to listen to that. It's not only all of your stuff that's inherent to you. It also comes down to the kind of airplane, and it also comes down to potentially the geographic region that you're flying in. So, Art Bosler, I so appreciate the fact that you're coming on to have this deep-dive discussion in what affects seaplane insurance rates and how we can help pilots reduce the cost of these insurance rates. So um, I'm going to say that we're going to shut this episode down, Abby. What do you think?
1: I think that's a great idea. I'd like to take a second to thank everyone that submitted questions on Instagram and on Facebook. You guys really helped make this uh, a well-rounded member input podcast. Um, I know that we didn't answer every question. We're going to try to in the next episode. But just a quick shout out, Steve S., Ron S., and John B. You guys submitted questions on Facebook. Really appreciate it. We want to answer your questions as well as we can. And we're so glad we have art here to help
0: us do that. So if we didn't get to your question, guys, we're going to try to get it in either the second or third installment. We'll see how far this podcast goes it's gonna on. Going. It's, <laughs> it's gonna just gonna going to keep going. <laughs> and and it's really nice. I, I can't really stress enough how much we appreciate having such a great great resource like Falcon Insurance and you are in the team at Falcon Insurance to come on the podcast and literally help our members and listeners find out strategies, how to get the best match you know financially for what they're doing so we're going to continue this episode there will be another continuation that we'll make this a series of podcasts that specialize on this topic of things you need to know uh, for seaplane insurance policies so uh listeners stay tuned there will be more (laughs) and until next time art thank you we will have you back very shortly And uh, Blue Skies and Calm Waters, our friends. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Waterflying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community and it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events, not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting waterflying.